Good evening. Good evening. It's a nice fall evening, isn't it? It is here. It's arrived. Hey, I have something to share here since um, I got to get blessed by uh, some speakers over the weekend up at uh, the conference, at uh, Piper's conference, and there was a guy by the name of Mark Talbot. Has anybody ever heard of Mark Talbot? Sound familiar? Maybe? Anyway, he said a few things that I cannot help but uh, to share with you here because it was uh, it was breathtaking. By the time he was in the end in his message, uh, it was uh, like saying this is just an incredible thought that he had. It was dealing with the sovereignty of God and how God governs. I think we had some more sheets. We had two, one back there, and and uh, if Bill wants one, or do you have one, Kristen? Okay. Uh, and so, if you don't mind, if I can just read a little bit, I uh, just took this off the the uh, their website today because as he was saying that there was no way I could copy all this down, and I wasn't even going to try. But I thought, oh boy, I'd love to share that. So here it is. We're dealing with God governing everything, right? In chapter 13, it's about God governs the government that governs us. God governs all. He governs nature. He governs human nature. And He governs a government. Uh, here's what He had to say about um, the stage, or actually the uh, the whole idea that uh, they were based on, the whole theme was dealing with the, uh, the theater, the theater of God. We're all in the theater. There's been a, people in the past People in the present, there'll be people in the future. It uh, deals with uh, nature, the whole universe for that matter, and even goes further all the way really to Christ because He is a theater. But it was entitled Calvin in the Theater of God. And we are all actors in this theater. And so every one of the speakers was dealing with that topic uh, of, the, of the theater. And the one that uh, he took was... Um, about the sovereignty of God and suffering. But this is dealing with God governing everything. Listen to the statements that he has here and see if it's anything different than, than what we talk about. Only the words that he has are much more fluent. And so I want to use his words. There is nothing in the entire dispensation of human events that God does not temper in the best way. He considered the human world a dazzling theater of God's glory. What are thought to be chance occurrences in human life are God's doings. And the question is asked, how can God be tempering all things for good when there is such sin and suffering in the world? And that's the question that you will get from uh, agnostics, atheists, people who are think that Christianity is just crazy stuff, and they say, well, how can you explain sin and suffering, right? He goes on to say this, Picturing our world as having a broken stage is illuminating. Seeing everything from Adam to the end is understood as happening on a broken stage. We can't ever be sure that the floorboards or the speakers or the curtains will always work right. And then he, this was dealing with, with Calvin, Calvin assures us God governs nature and all natures, including human nature and our individual human natures. Consequently, nothing in the natural or human world falls out of God's providential hands. Absolutely nothing in this world comes about, not even a single drop of rain, without God's having willed it. Nothing is more absurd than that anything should happen without God ordaining it. Nothing will take place that the Lord has not previously foreseen and that He has not adapted to make good and agreeable to His perfect plans. And he says, this is easy enough to agree with until we bump up against things that are so evil, and he used the, the Holocaust, or 911, etc., does it seem right to say that God will Luther's spiritual depression? Ought we to believe that God planned from eternity past that God willed some of Luther's incredible and sometimes unacceptable crassness? What about Calvin's ill health or the death of his infant child and wife? 
man is acted upon by God, while at the same time, man also acts. We will, and indeed we must will, and while we must will, we must also search out God's will, knowing that God requires of us only what He commands from us in Scripture. He doesn't require of us to seek out and know what His secret will is. He requires of us only what He commands in Scripture. At the same time, what God wills is a deep abyss that involves more than we can comprehend. They are hidden from us. We cannot grasp how God wills to take place through human wills what He forbids in Scripture to be done. To us, that's an abyss that we cannot understand. Yet here we must recall our mental incapacity. Understanding why the blame for our evil acts does not run through to God is difficult for carnal sense. Thieves and murderers are the instruments of divine providence, and the Lord Himself uses these to carry out the judgments that He has determined within Himself. He uses the thieves and the murderers to carry out judgments. Yet I deny that they can derive any excuse from their evil deeds on account of this. To derive such an excuse would be absurd. And listen to this. I thought this was incredible what he said. It would be absurd as blaming the sun for the stench of a corpse. Though the corpse stinks because of the sun's rays, no one would ever say that the rays themselves stink. Thus, since the matter and guilt of evil repose in a wicked man, what reason is there to think that God contracts any defilement if he uses his service for his own purpose? About done here. This view of divine providence will always lie open to misunderstanding and misinterpretation despite such analogies. Comprehending how God's will can cause all things is simply beyond human mental capacity because no matter how hard and long we try, we cannot understand how in diverse ways God both wills and does not will the same thing to take place. Yet in spite of this ever-present danger of misunderstanding, Calvin will not back away from affirming God's providence over these things. Calvin thinks that biblical history shows that God's eternal decrees are not abrogated or broken even when he seems to repent or change his approach. God does not express syllable by syllable what is nevertheless easy to understand. The point is, is that when you go through the biblical examples, you realize that God both wills and does not will the same thing to take place but you're not going to find one single passage that says exactly that. In the final analysis, all Calvin can do is just agree with Augustine. Augustine said this, There is a great difference between what is fitting for man to will and what is fitting for God. Often after we have suffered a while, here we go, the problem with how God can will such suffering resolves itself because we start to see the good that God is accomplishing by it. Rather meaty stuff. And uh, that's Mark Talbot. Uh, incredible. And of course that went on. That was just his introduction into that. And what it says is nothing is by accident. Not even a raindrop. Everything that comes about is because of His will. And if it's something else, then he's less than God, isn't he? And that is uh, a sovereign God dealing with whatever. And uh, when we deal with Romans 13, we were talking about the sovereignty of God and his passing sovereignty on, in a sense, uh, rulership to uh, governing agents all throughout the world under different governments that can be very evil. And we can say, how can this be God's will to govern when they are doing so many evil things and they do it right here in this nation? And yet we know that God and His will is coming about and accomplishing its very purpose. Extremely high thoughts. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. You are certainly 
an awesome God that we are looking at when we look in the Scriptures. You have revealed Yourself as much as what You want to reveal, and it's more than we can even handle. Your Word is precious. Your Holy Spirit is so valuable to us. He is our life, and He is the way that we can understand You and know that the person of Christ is the one who is exalted in all of this, for He is the one that has given us the new life. And this triune God that we desire to worship and have been given that desire, we say thank You, Lord, as we are before Your feet. And may we be able to go a little bit deeper in our understanding of You tonight as we peer into Your Word. And even though it's dealing with government and sometimes a very sore issue with us as Christians for the fact that we've there are many things that we disagree with as far as uh, spiritual matters are concerned, but we truly want your will, and sometimes it seems to contradict with what uh, is happening. But we look at you and we trust in you. And just guide us into this truth tonight, Lord. Amen. Well, the reason we went into that sovereignty thing is because government, and we looked at it last week, is really, it's by divine decree. The reason we have government is because God decreed it. Uh, he gave us marriage. That was an institution. He gave us the church. That was an institution. He gave us government. That's an institution. It's ordained. It's ordained by God for the benefit of us, the benefit of society. Robert Haldane even said this, Civil government is a dispensation of mercy, and its existence is so indispensable that the moment it ceases under one form, it will reestablish itself in another. Because of corruption and depravity of man, without the powerful obstacle presented by civil government... It would be better to live among beasts of the forest than in human society. As soon as it restraints are removed, man shows himself in his real character. And that's what he does. When there was no king in Israel, what is it said in, in uh, Judges? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So it's an institution of God that is very important. It's very valid regardless of any time, any circumstance, any place. It's a tremendous thing that God has given us, this government. God grants power, actually gives power. We looked at that last week, and that word was, uh, we looked at exousia, uh, and that's the power that is delegated from God to others. He allows human beings to rule over other human beings But remember, all power comes from Him. It all is from Him. The entire universe is subject to God. Now let's turn to Acts 17, since we are in Romans, right? Acts 17, 24 through 26. And uh, this is the chapter where Paul is in Athens and addressing the Areopagus. And he says, God who made the world and everything in it since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives life, gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That's quite a statement as he makes to uh, people who were had, having their philosophies and worship of uh, different gods, and he shows this one God who created. And you can say, wow, he is over all the universe, everything, control of it all, just, just absolutely everything. And you have to start thinking, well, yeah, but you know, Satan has a part in this. Satan has power. And what's going on here? It seems that Satan is really having his way. He's having a field day in the in the world today, and God has actually permitted to him to have all this vast territory all across the the known universe. And 
but yet he's limited. He's limited in the, in the power that he has. And, of course, you can look at the book of Job and other passages we have here. But Satan cannot make man sin. But ever since the fall, he entices mankind to indulge in their sinful nature that they already have, and they manifest their disobedience to God. So it is, he is definitely an enemy. He is not on par with God at all. God just uses him. He's a pawn. He's a created uh, angel who's now considered to be a demon. Turn to a few passages because we know that governments seem to be led by by the enemy. The, the whole world lies in the lap of the what? The wicked one? Ephesians 2, You He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. There is the prince of the power of the air. You go to 1 John 5.19, and that's where we were just talking about the whole world lies in the lap of the uh, the evil one. Um, you can look in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 31. It says, and, and if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to my... Uh, to back up. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And you keep going on, chapter 16, verse 11. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In chapter 14, verse 30, John referred to him a lot. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. The ruler of this world. Uh, So he has been given a sense of power, if if we may say that, just like he's get, delegated his power to governors and princes and kings. Uh, we could turn to Isaiah 14. We could turn to Ezekiel 28, see how the enemy has uh, done what he has done and, and uh, what what he's going to do. Human government was instituted by God, and human government fulfills God's plan. And that's mainly to maintain order on the earth. It's to, to keep some semblance of peace. Many governments are under the, the influence of Satan, though. And you can think down through history, you can think of Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and go on and on with all of those leaders. But yet their position was given by God. That authority was there. God was not out of control when that happened. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. Then you can go into the jungles where you have the shamans and they rule these tribes, and they're into animism, all sorts of weird stuff, demonic stuff. God still uses those rulers. God uses this institution, for He has a plan, and His plan is because there's a fall on humankind. And so here we are, and God gives us this gift. But no matter what, this broken stage has broken people. And broken people do things that are very depraved and wicked. Some are worse than others. But we look in Romans 13 and we say, thank you, Lord, for giving us government. And I know we can we can have a, a wrong view sometimes um, about what has happened or is happening, and yet He still expects us to be subject to the governing authorities. That's every soul, every being. Incredible, isn't it? Well, that's one reason. It's by divine decree. That's a pretty good reason to submit to the government. But that's not all. When we read on, and let's take it up in verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Now, we've covered that, right? Probably not as good as we could. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Wow. Now we get into kind of where we're going tonight. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. The resistance to government is actually rebellion against who? God. Wow. 
Now, we did show last week there are occasions. They're going to be rare, but there are occasions when we are called to disobey the government. We kind of covered that, but that will probably come in and out as we go through this text. One we know is evangelizing. Uh, another one would be when, whenever the government tells us to do something that's to- just immoral. And there is room. And where you draw that line, you have to be very careful, and you can't always draw that line exactly the way everybody would draw that line, but it, there is room for civil disobedience. And so we got into that a little bit. We won't get into it tonight, but though we have that, that video on on an occasion. Uh, you still have that, right? And I'm not so sure when we're doing it. We might do it next week. might be the week after. We'll see where we're headed after tonight, but it'll be, it'll be dealing with Hitler and his government uh, and a Christian and one who was very strong and he knew the cost of discipleship. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a reform guy. And uh, so it'll be interesting to, to watch that. And uh, after you're said and done, we might have differing opinions on whether he should have done it or not. But despite that matter, you will have to agree that really what he was really pushing was not about himself or about himself being taken advantage of, but it was people being oppressed and the gospel being suppressed. And he wanted to get the truth out. And I'm not trying to sway either way. Everybody would make up their own mind, but uh, there's definitely, uh, I think, uh, uh, room for civil disobedience in very minute cases. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about that. I'll be interested in reading that a little bit more in this Romans 13. I've seen him make some pretty good quotes, especially him living over in the the British Isles and uh, knowing the history there. The next thing you'd ask about, what about... What about the uh, Revolutionary War? That presents some, provokes some thought, doesn't it? God's in control, though. So, if we resist the government, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. We're resisting God. Government's an institution of God. To rebel on it is to rebel against God. Go all the way back to uh, the law in uh, Numbers 13. Or number 16. Yes, there was a uh, theocracy set up here. They gathered together against, and I think that's probably a key word there, Moses and Aaron. Uh, here you have um, people rebelling against him in this chapter. Um, Korah, remember Korah? And uh, some others. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And then you have... You know what happened to Korah, don't you? Korah in the rebellion. Anyway, they're saying, Who are you to be the leader of all these people? God is our leader. They're questioning what God had set up. God had set up leadership. Uh, Moses and Aaron is going to be the one speaking to them much of, of the time. And they said, the congregation's holy. <laughs> and every one of them, and, uh, the Lord is among them. The Lord's leading there, right? Move on to verse uh, 13. 12. Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should keep acting like a prince over us? 
I don't think they liked Moses and Aaron uh, being their leaders. How often did they grumble against Moses? On and on. When you read through the book of Exodus, you see that constantly, whether it be over food or water. Here it's about the leadership. And uh, you just brought us out here to kill us. And uh, who are you to be a prince over us? Question and authority that actually came from God. Verse 31, skip some. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them. Moses has been speaking. And the Lord's been speaking. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up with their households, and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. This is a holy God. And He does not take kindly to people who question His authority and the authority that He's given to. Verse 41, On the next day all the congregation of the children of Israel, look at this, complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Verse 46, So Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded, ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. There you see the wrath of God. You see the mercy of God. And some people would say, I don't want that kind of God that would destroy Korah and those people. And and then the other congregation, why wouldn't they complain? Because those are they killed our people. God is that holy. And to have Moses and Aaron being spoken to in that way, and this wasn't the first time. It was many times. But it shows that eventually God will judge. Well, He made the whole camp see how holy He was. I can't believe the next day that they were complaining. Dealing with... uh, The... uh, the, the rod. Yeah. And you keep going on through the Exodus story and through, through this law and you continue to see more. And God had every right to wipe them all out. Even before they even went into the promised land, or, or out into the desert before they even went to the promised land. He, he could have wiped them all out. When you really think about who they were and who He is, God is serious to go against the rebellion. This dealing with the leaders that He had appointed. And you say, well, Moses and Aaron were godly men. But oh, none of them ever did anything any worse than anything we've ever done. Have we ever complained? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm glad we saw the story of mercy here. But at the same time, we have to believe there is a God of wrath. And He does do those kind of things throughout the Old Testament. But it's never without warrant. But He could do it at any time for seemingly no human reason. That's the way it always seems to people. God can't do those kind of things. It's like, how can we limit God by saying He cannot do things whenever He can do anything that He wants at any time? Look at Ananias and Sapphira. You know, in Acts, that probably really hurt their church growth program. Oh, 
God, they're going to mess up their... People aren't going to come here. <laughs> Barb. Yeah. I became Christian. And I remember I was reading this. Well, you know, a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament. And I was thinking how mean God was. I thought, man, he just really, you know, do what I say or you die. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is a hospice chaplain about that. And he said, well, he said, you know, don't look at it that way. I said, well, how should I look at it? And he said, look at the seriousness of sin. Said very well. That's the whole point. John Calvin and his Institutes really sums up his books in in two parts. Know God. Know yourself. We sin. God is holy. When you see His holiness and shining, you cannot help but see the sin. And therefore, one pleads for mercy. And uh, that's what it's about. That's that's gave a very correct answer. That's, that's the whole thing. People uh, naturally don't know their sin. Like Bill was saying, we all have done it. We've all complained. We've all probably complained about the government, really. Today? <laughs> this day, <laughs> And there's sometimes when you know uh, righteousness has to stand out. We we know that. Um, boy, to get it in the right perspective, though, it's a, it it is hard. It's a test, isn't it? And uh, I think God uses that test. But we were saying the reasons. It's a it's it's for our benefit. It's a it's a good thing. Dennis, there isn't, isn't the real issue is not so much uh, taking a stand for or against government. The issue is taking a four or a stand where God takes Very good. a stand and a stand where He stands. It's a little bit like there was a, a group of pastors who went to uh, Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, and they said, uh, uh, Mr. President, uh, you think God is on our side. And uh, Lincoln, who possibly at that time wasn't even a Christian, said, uh, the, the real issue of the question is not if God is on our side, but are we on His side? Uh, so you're going to turn right around uh, when you get past numbers and, and uh, this passage, and you're going to have uh, the prophet, let's take Elijah, who is God's man, who spoke uh, uh, judgment on Ahab, judgment on, on, uh, on Jezebel, uh, judgment on the uh, government's uh, prophets, prophets of Baal. The difference is, is that he stood where God stood. He didn't stand against God. So, really, if we were to think about it, hey, I'm going to change my thoughts on the government because I want to honor God. Because He's the one that has brought this. Now, um, I can definitely disagree with things, not necessarily in a uh, rebellious way, but realizing what made be an ungodly law that comes across or whatever you know we, we and we we even have rights that have been given to us and we kind of covered this last week so I'm not trying to get into that but you know in in the government we've been given which is you know uh, quite a blessing to be able to vote for the people that uh, people choose and and to be able to uh make calls and and write letters and still and still be within the realm of honoring God and definitely, if we can present the Lord in that matter, it would even be better, wouldn't it? As we would put it in there as saying that He's the one that is giving the power. I respect the power as it is from Him. Well, the next one is that at the end of verse 2, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So, since the government is a minister of God. It's a servant. It's really serving God, serving us. The one who rebels against that then will suffer consequences from who? From the government. Of course, it's not directly coming from God, but I guess in a sense, you know, we're getting punished from Him, but He has the government to do that. When they act right, <laughs> when they when they do right. Uh, go to Matthew 26. That's where I was heading. Isn't that where 
Jesus told Pilate, the power you have has been given given to you. Is that where I was looking Very for? good. Yeah, okay. that's 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 right, right there. That's that hits it. Yeah, Jesus told him. There he is sitting under is underneath him. <laughs> but no no, Bill, that's that's absolutely right. That's that I think there was a a verse that I had on there last week. Yeah. This is dealing with Peter. Uh, Peter takes his sword out and struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Now, the government has the sword. That's talking about um, the, the punishment all the way to... Uh, if it's murder or something uh, along that lines that is worthy of death, uh, then they are to carry that about too. Uh, of course, our government has problems with that anymore. Uh, when one takes a life, uh, they don't all agree that uh, that life should be taken. Of course, that's another thing too, isn't it? Uh, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29.13. Dealing with uh, civil laws here, people never are to take the punishment and do it on their own to people who have offended them. Twenty-nine, thirteen, uh, twelve. That you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into His oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, and that He may establish you today as a people for Himself, and that He may be God to you, just as He spoke to you and just as He sworn to you. What, what am I doing? Uh, I miss, uh, can't remember which one it is now. Uh, I missed it somewhere. Oh well. Enough verses. We got the, we have the Romans passages. Enough. We got two at least, right? Okay. I'll have to run, find out what that is again. That, uh, that other passage from Jesus said to Pilate, um, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. There we go. Yeah. That's, uh, John 19, 11. There's Jesus being God Himself at that time, being man, who is subject to the rule over Him in that sense. And He recognizes that, and He does it with respect. But He knows that that power was only given to Him because God gave it to Him. Quite clear. So there's there's justice that's done whenever there is punishment. Um, the government brings on justice. It's to be brought on by the authorities, not the one who has had the offense made. It's it's never an individual getting back. We've already seen that set up in uh, Romans 12. Um, but 13, we see where the authorities uh, do that, if, uh, if it's a crime. The only thing is, is that the state has to know what good is. And in a time that we live in where they teach in the public schools that there are no absolutes, then how do we know what good is? Well, we have laws made, but now you have in the courts where the judges actually are making their own laws from the bench and changing the laws. Uh, that was never meant to be, but that has been done in practice and believed by uh, many liberal people. Does the judge actually have the right to actually rule as he wishes according to the Constitution? Can he make up laws? Absolutely not. We have a standard. We have what is good. What should be done, what shouldn't be done, we have a constitution. It's a standard. A standard that's... Many things there are based upon the very Word of God. Uh, so it's clear. Uh, I think that's objective to look at. But now it's become muddied when you don't have absolutes, then what is good? Just like Pilate said, what is truth? Now it's muddy. It's unclear. How do you function? Can he? Can a judge make laws? Well, it was never meant to be that way at all. But there, there still is being justice practiced. I know sometimes it doesn't look like it so much. We also see that it's a deterrent. Whenever there is punishment done by the authorities, it should deter people from doing that crime. Why are our prisons so packed that they let 
many of them out because they don't have any room to put them in all across the United States. And then my next question is, why do we have prisons? If you would have punishment carried out the way that it was meant to be, and like Bill was saying, yeah, last week, um, I forgot what I was going to say there. Do you remember what you said last week about that? Uh, anyway. Yesterday. A couple hours ago. A serious punishment, though, should keep people from... It, it really should discourage people from wanting to do what they did because they see what happens to them. Uh, committing a crime. It's a serious thing. Well, today, what's the worst that can happen? They can be put in a place... Have uh, three square meals? Is that what it is? Uh, even be entertained? Uh, I mean, it's not that bad of a place, and this is all for free. You don't have to pay a dime. Oh, <laughs> it's not. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? A thief in Iran can have his hand cut off. People still steal. Mm-hmm. Somebody caught in adultery or stoned death, there's still people committing adultery. Those kind of punishments in a fallen world don't work. Yeah, you're getting into a, a heart change there, I think. Uh, matter of fact... Um, what did you do? I've been thinking that we're talking about submitting to government. What do believers do in places where there is no government? And I'm particularly thinking of Somalia right now, probably the most lawless place in the world. Is it anarchy there? The, the ruler is the guy with the biggest guns and the most bullets. And he can control his block. And there's somebody on the next block doing the same thing. And across town there's somebody else doing There is absolutely no civil government. That's that judge's passage, isn't it? Everybody does what's right in his own eyes or whatever power you have or whatever you want to do. But how can a person submit in a place like that? I just recently read an article. There were four people just recently beheaded because they would not renounce their Christianity. Uh, I agree with everything you've said. That's what we ought to do. And it's simple in a what we would call a civilized society in our country. It's not so simple in the rest of the world, I don't You know, in um, what's sad in our country, because we have become less and less on punishment and more and more into, and this goes right along with what you're talking about, into correcting those individuals or reforming them what without means? truth. Somebody said two or three weeks ago that they're not they're not prisons anymore, they're rehabilitation centers. Yeah, that's what I was trying to think of a while ago. Your, your yeah. language has changed. You used to have what was called a penitentiary. And even in theological circles, we talked about a penal substitutionary atonement. And that meant that there was a price to pay for sin, and Christ paid that price for me. He was penalized as a substitute for me. That's penal substitutionary atonement. And that even carried over into our terminology in criminal justice. We had a penitentiary. Penitentiary. Get out right. Well, when we went away from the penal concept, the concept of paying a price for sin, you now change the name to a correctional, correctional center. center. And if you if you study this, that change began to take place in the late 19 and, and uh, late 18 early 1900s. And of course, this town was one of the last of the penitentiary. Um, one of the last in the country. We changed. We at least society at least did this. Uh, maybe in step with their own thoughts. As as that mindset changed, we at least changed the vernacular that went along with it. We're at least consistent there. We changed, we changed the term. But and, and that is why we changed those names, is because we do not view it that way anymore. Right. Now, 
should we go back to a the barbaric um, behaviors of a true penitentiary. I'll tell you know what it is and you know, really take a strong look at it. Uh, be careful what you say because there is a very inhumane way. We're going back to man shows his sin whether he be on one side or the other, right? And they can over they can abuse their position that they're in as a guard or whatever they serve in that prison. Uh, wasn't it Churchill that said power corrupts and absolutely uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely? And the problem with a penal uh, environment is the. The punishment that you inflict also has an effect on you. Okay. So that is that becomes a very corrupting um, situation, or can in, in most cases. And, and this is why we have moved upon that. It, it, do you? Do you it didn't, as Elvin said just a minute ago, it didn't solve the, the problems prior to. I mean, we still had murder. We still had uh, heinous crimes. So did we solve it by going to a, a correctional mode? No. But going back to a penal code will not make us a sinless society either. In some senses, it seems hopeless from a human standpoint, because of sin, at the same time God has given us this, if the government were to correctly serve out the punishment, uh, I do know in some countries if somebody commits a murder, they will hang them up in the town square and everybody will see them. I'm not suggesting that's what should happen here, but the the crime for that particular like murder uh, and I'm talking about in the Middle East is far less percentage wise compared to our country uh, it's we're not even close to we did, we did that the return time. they sold tickets to hanging yeah here, here in Jefferson City they sold tickets uh, to the hanging there's the other side of mankind he's always showing his corruption isn't he but if mankind were to take God's law, and what does man do with God's law anyway, though? He always corrupts it, breaks it. We're broken people. We're a broken society. We have broken governments. But, it, but like Eldon said, what would happen if we didn't have any kind of government and we had total anarchy? And everybody went around, uh, whoever wanted to take charge, you know, that day and had the, the gunpower and the manpower, they're in charge. And that would be a sad situation. That anarchy means no government. And God doesn't institute no government. He institutes government. It's better than it it would be if it didn't have any at all. Uh, I'm glad we have the government that we do. But, boy, we have problems in this nation, which uh, just about leads most of the world in a depraved world. It has murder. It's just about as bad. But per capita, we're right at the top. And evidently, it doesn't work. Uh, prisons were never really designed. You will see uh, uh, that mention in the Old Testament, but it was not put there by God to be instituted. It was to be done. It was to be done without delay. If you look at Ecclesiastes 8.11, it's talking about punishment being done, punishment to be done on the spot. As soon as there was a sentencing, that was to be done, a speedy trial. And that favors every everybody. It's what is supposed to be in most nations that have a democracy, a speedy trial. We have it in our Constitution. But now with mankind the way that he is, trials can go on for literally years sometimes. It's not filling out what God had in mind. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, you know, and just back up, in the first place, why are so many of those people there? Did they ever learn, like, authority in a family unit? That's usually the problem, isn't it? Have broken families, you know, they know their dad or the 
the people that were their dads were the, you know, coming in and out of the prison system, and that's normal for them. And they just don't learn that authority. Never from day one. Yeah, and so it's a vicious cycle. Broken families. Broken, everything's broken. And that's the thing that God designed to really train people, you know, how to submit to authority. And so, that's yep. probably That's true. Last, what, 35 years, 50? Mm-hmm. There's always been the, you know, the people, there's always been, you know, the Wild West and, and all that, but it just seems like in the last, you know, the prisons have grown and no solutions, really. Well, God wants us to learn to subject ourselves to the authority in the family, first to mom and dad. We see that as set up in Ephesians. Um, uh, learning what authority is as far as uh, at, at church and in the government. And uh, in in all aspects, and whoever you know we work for, all of that is designed by God to way that things are supposed to work. But as uh, man is corrupt, we see things always break down. They can they can be you can see here and there the way that it's supposed to be, and it really gives glory to God. And most of the time, we see man breaking God's law. This is this is so primary but people do not like to be under authority but God wants us to learn authority because we can learn authority with mom and dad when we're little kids and we can learn who the authority is over our lives fully that being God and how he's delegated it and to follow under that people don't like that word subjection Christians hate it and uh People don't have an understanding of, uh, my goodness, even in the family, uh, husband and wife, and how that relationship's supposed to be. And so, therefore, you have the broken families. You have broken families. That's going to produce on out into the world. And as you say, uh, we can do it here. Then we can see. I, I love to submit to God. That's the problem in the world. People don't want to submit to God. They don't even want to recognize that He's there even. Deuteronomy 25.3 This is what it is supposed to lead to, and that's pardon and rehabilitation. The punishment is. Now, it's not a, a correctional way. And ultimately, really, this, this turns into a spiritual thing. How else can we be changed? unless there is a change on the inner part. Deuteronomy 25.3 says, And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to your fathers to get. What am I doing? Wrong chapter. Twenty. I said 25, right? right. 40 blows. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. Got this one right. 40 blows he may give him and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. There it's, it's giving a limit of how much was supposed to be. No more than that. We know that there was the 39 lashes and, and that was going to be it because anything over that, uh, who knows, it might kill, kill the man. Uh, no more than those 40. And it, it could bring humiliation. You don't want to bring a man to such humiliation that he is no good for his family himself or society and they were to be welcomed back in the society at that time if they did a, a crime they punished them what was worthy of that crime but there was a limit to it and like like Bill was saying yeah on the other side over here you have people that take advantage of those people and they, that gives them a chance to abuse their powerful position and uh, they make their own strikes and blows to them or verbal abuses or who knows what they do. I've heard of some things where guards have been so inhumane uh, to to people in prisons. And uh, uh, criminals really were never meant to be permanently stigmatized. They were to be punished and uh, worthy of what they were to get and then to be welcomed back in the society. That's totally different than the prison system that we know that doesn't work. Yeah, Bill. So, I mean, 
Philadelphia. Yeah. I think it's Yeah, the, the people in the sports world are not, uh, um, let's say, they're not perfect either. We've seen that in football and baseball and basketball, and there's been some murders and then some lesser crimes and such. Plays there too. It, it's seen, though. Everybody gets to see it, don't they? Yeah. Let's try another one. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. That's in verse 3. Government is here to restrain the evil. If it's carried out the way it's supposed to do, it will do that. And it is. Uh, I mean, if if this turned into an anarchy, if uh, the government didn't do any kind of punishment at all or didn't get some of those guys off the street and, and uh, whatever, then what kind of nation would we have? So it is in play. It is working not fully. Got a lot of dents in it, doesn't it? Just look in our own country or other countries. But it, it what is the direction, the overall direction that everything is going? Is it getting going to get better? This is the kingdom of God is eventually going to take over and come in, or is it going to get worse and worse and worse until the Lord re- returns? See, we're talking about some yeah. uh, millennial views now of what's going to happen in the future. Well, I think with mankind, I don't think mankind is going to get better. I think mankind, and as it says in Timothy, that it's going to wax worse. I think man is going to show, and the more that you have of man in a world, the more sin you're going to have. And so, therefore, we're not going to get better. We're going to get. We're going to show and expose what we really are. It's going to take the person of Christ to relieve us of this despair <laughs> that seems like we're in. And we're not. We have all the hope that we can be. You know, we talk about it, but, but can't, we can't get better. What's that? Exactly. That's the whole point. If we're dependent on, on our government to, to bail us out of this situation, we are people... Uh, that are going to uh, be very sorry. <laughs> well, now we have that passage in Second Timothy chapter three. Um, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, so on and so forth. But that's in the church. I mean, all of these descriptions of of the of the people that they're talking about the terrible times in the last days. All of these kinds of people are in the church. There's certainly disobedience you know, to parents there. Some of those other ones, yeah. So, you know. Well, we can't discount history either, and, uh, and history has shown us that every civilization goes through the same thing that's happening with this, you know, with our society. And there are no other land masses that we can run to like we did before from England. <laughs> you know, yeah. There's nowhere else to go. You know? so, that's you know, right. People we need to decide now. <laughs> I don't plan it. There we go. <laughs> There's the solution. <laughs> yeah. Just make a stand for the Lord now and just hang on. Isn't that what all this is about? In the mean, while we're here, we're we're citizens here, but yet we're strangers. You know, followers of Christ, put out the seed, and you know, whatever God does with us. You know, all those people in Rome that 
went through there, all the things they went through. This, you know, this could be coming into, you know, into uh, what we live in in the next generation or two. And, uh, you know, but uh, that's, uh, you know, that's just facing the reality. And, and the Babylonians, God, yeah. Medes, Persians, yeah. Greeks, Romans. America's been uh, so ungodly in five generations, at least now, that, you know, progressively worse, that, uh, thank the Lord, he, you know, he keeps working through his own to, you know, do what he's going to do. It's, it's a persecution of the part of time. I think the true gems begin to show out in Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think a little uh, raining on our parade, our Christianese parade, is maybe the, the right thing. Always has made it stronger. I like, uh, yeah, that's that's true. I, all at the same time, remember, okay, this power is still coming from God. We don't put our hope in it, but we do put our submission there. God is the one controlling this. <laughs> and then we are to to do our part in it so that God be glorified in our obedience to that. And then you have Ecclesiastes um, 8.11, which I think is fascinating because I think this kind of tells the story a little bit. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men, the heart of the sons of men, is fully set in them to do evil. Because a punishment is not done readily, look what happens. And that does say it, doesn't it? Not, not the heart. But the government, what it does, it, it, it does restrain evil. It is doing it here. We're still living here. We're not living amongst, you know, we're not having to, to go out into the, the wilderness, uh, out into the, the desert, uh, the jungles or whatever to escape because it's gone so crazy. Uh, it defends its citizens from from enemies outside the state, and when that happens, it has it has the power to wage war. Uh, a government does with other nations, and this includes all the things that goes with it. And that means uh, what drafting men, dr- taxing for wartime efforts, all the things that go with that, all the things that uh, may not like, but it, it does defend us from other places. Number two, it defends us from within. This has to maintain social order. Uh, so I think what we need to do as Christians is do what Paul told Timothy, and that's pray for the government that uh, it would be peaceful and that we'd be able to continue on our efforts to bring forth the gospel. For that really is the reason we are here to glorify God in all the things that we go through. He has sent Everything, remember what we started with? Everything that happens, He is the one that's in control of that. And so when that happens, we can say, you know, I don't understand this, but this is for the good. So despite all the things going around, we are to be praying that we can take that gospel out to the lost world, and here's the answer, so that it can change individuals so that they change from within. We can't do that. No government, no correctional system is ever going to do that. But we have the news and the Holy Spirit has the power to show them the Son. The good news changes lives. And that is how it ultimately works. There is one government that is perfect, and we look to that to come. You know, when Christ is seen all in all, and believe me, He is right now, although at one of these days there won't be any other authorities. All will be subject to Him. I like what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, that is very precious. When everything is turned back into into one the way that it is supposed to be.
verse 26. The last, no, let's take it up in verse 25. Verse 24, and comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for He has put all things under His feet. But when He says all things are put under Him, it is evident that He who put all things under Him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. That's where we're headed for. And now, when you realize that this is not by accident, in the time that we live in and all the things that are going on, God has somehow designed this his glory and we can say I want to give him glory so we just be obedient in what he uh, gives us let's uh, close with the word of prayer oh, yeah elder sorry